So I invite you to notice your next breath. And allow that breath to center you. The breath, the human breath, is that eternal cycle of taking in and releasing. And so as we come together this morning in that beautiful song that Sparrow just sang with us, reminded that as we stand as an intentional and, and spiritual community committed to and devoted to the work of consciousness and how each and every one of us can bring it to the world. And so that's what calls us together. That, that life that lives within us and around us, that guides and directs us as we open our intuition and our heart, not just our minds, to that divine guidance. For that, that busy mind within us is not who we are. It's not who I am, it's not who you are, and it's not the truth. But it's busy. And so as we breathe, let's quiet that. Let's quiet the mind, open the heart, open the divine intuition a couple inches below the navel point with a nice, deep, relaxed breath. And I invite you in this moment to allow my words to be your words. If they are not for you, let them wash over you. Don't need to fix them. Just don't accept them. Choose. We choose our way into a deepening of consciousness, thought by thought, day by day. Our thoughts change on average for every 14 seconds. So we have many times and opportunities to choose each day. But on your behalf, what I offer is this, that this life, this presence, this power, this one divine presence, the divine father, the divine mother, this infinite and beautiful sacred field of awareness, I recognize fully. And in claiming my connection with it, my divine oneness with it, my moving into where it is not just an intellectual idea, but it is tangible with each breath, with the next breath, deeper, more peaceful. I invite you to, in that acknowledgement of the oneness, as Paramahansa Yogananda would say, reveal thyself. What I would say this day is, have thy way with me, Lord. Have thy way with my thoughts, with my heart, with my words, with my actions. And there is an elevating, there is a, a lifting in this. It is beautiful and wonderful and powerful. It is not a, a man God or a woman God. It is a field of the feminine and the masculine. It is this beautiful, infinite presence, everywhere present. And so beautifully orbed within each and every one of us as we breathe in and say, welcome. Reveal thyself. Have thy way with me. And so in knowing that, I know everything is in divine right order. We have come home is that beautiful song that Sparrow just shared with us, coming home. This is the coming home. And each time we come home at a deeper level and a more expansive level, that busy mind is quieter and quieter. So that we can be present. And so in this, I just give thanks, I release these words, and I release the energy and the consciousness upon them to go out into the world and bless wherever love is required, wherever that which I am offering is longed for, and it is returned to myself and to you, pressed down and overflowing tenfold or more. For this, I give thanks. I invite you to say with me, and so it is. Ah.
I love being able to come and do the prayer with you. It's like I'm ready to go home now. But we are home, didn't I? Isn't Sparrow great? Holy man. She is an angel of God's presence. So blessed. I just, she's as beautiful a person as, as her voice is, so clear and crisp and part of the soundtrack of my life. So, you, you know, we, we, we come together, we do the, the, our prayer work, which really helps lift us. Our prayer is really, a, to, for me, the prayer is a, that, that experience, and it's such a lovely thing to share together. It's more than just ideas. And if you find yourself wandering in it, then that's okay as well. But, but for me, our, 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 our spiritual practice is the thing that helps shift our awareness, and awareness is really clarity. And so what I know about spiritual practices is, is my my practice becomes more consistent and reliable for myself, greater clarity shows up. And so I have it with that clarity, then when thoughts show up and my, and my activities and, my, and the, the things that fire within me, those chemicals that get fired within me, you know, has anyone ever had an experience of being angry? Yeah. I mean, there's a physiology that goes on. There's something that gets triggered. And so with clarity, it's all of a sudden, it's not just, geez, I'm angry and I'm going to do something because I'm angry or I got to go revenge myself. You know, that's such a popular theme, this, I got to get justice and I got to revenge myself. I think that's why that, the story of Jesus is so disappointing for so many, because he didn't have an ounce of revenge in him. Like, oh, you know, all those guys he could have got. You know, he could have done it, you know, and he was, you know, he, on and on and on. And his story was one of, forgive them for they know not what they do. Man, that's, that's serious spiritual practice, especially when you're being crucified. Holy moly. So for us, how do, how do we tie into this idea of, of the Christ, the cosmic Christ, or this Christ being awakened in us? And it's doing our own work, waking up and realizing, oh, I'm being triggered here. I'm being hooked here. Something's happening to me here that I don't, I don't understand, but I'm willing to look at it. I mean, that's a starting point. All of a sudden, take responsibility for how we feel is so impactful and important. So we're sharing this book, The One Idea. And that's going to come up in a moment. There it is. And it says, the surprising, simple truth behind extraordinary results. Is anybody here interested in extraordinary results besides me? Yeah. I mean, why not live an extraordinary life? Why not make life a blast? So I didn't tell this story at the first service, so I'll tell it when I get back to the first service. But I love this story. So I, I, was, going, I was Googling, and I saw this thing that said, great documentaries that you've got to see. On, on Netflix, and I happen to have Netflix, because I'm, you know, a, 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 I was a wannabe actor in Hollywood for a long time, which prepared me for this. I got to tell you, all of the rejection and the projection that went on as an actor in Hollywood prepared me for this role. I get it now. Thank you, God. You know, all the heartbreak, you, you're hat in hand all the time, you're always begging for the next job, you're always hoping, and oh, you, you know, you're doing, and that's why I got into this teaching, you know, I wanted to be rich and famous. And what it did was my, my dream brought me to my calling. But it's very, very, yeah. I finally got to a point where I realized, I think this needs to be about something more than just me. So, it, but fascinating. But in it, any, I saw this article and it said, great documentaries you got to see. And so I found this uh, movie called the, the Battered Bastards of Baseball. Anybody seen it? The Battered Bastards of Baseball. It was done in 2004. It is incredible. It is an amazing story of Bing Russell. Anybody know who Bing Russell is? Bing Russell is Kurt Russell's dad. Anybody know who Kurt Russell is? Yeah. Well, Bing was his dad, and as Kurt says, my dad was a plumber actor. He played Clem 
in Bonanza for 14 years. Do you remember Clem the deputy? That's Kurt Russell's dad. And he loved baseball. Oh, you gotta see this movie. It isn't, I've seen it twice now. I loved it so much. He loved baseball. He grew up in St. Petersburg, Florida with the New York Yankees that in their heyday had their spring training. And he was their peanut, he called himself the peanut rustler, smuggler. He was their peanut smuggler. And he, got, he became great pals with Lefty Gomez, who was a left-handed pitcher for the Yankees. So all the synchronicity that happened in this young man's life, and he loved baseball. Well, he comes to Hollywood, he becomes an actor, song and dance man. And Kurt Russell does part of the narrative, and it's wonderful, talking about his dad and all this stuff. Well, Bing decides in 1972 to go up to Portland, Oregon, and buy the local minor league baseball franchise, the Portland Mavericks. So it cost him 500 bucks, and he's in. And they had this beautiful statement because the AAA team moved out, and, and this was now single A. And it's a story of how he decides that, and they're not affiliated with any organization. So what happens in minor league sports, which this, this movie really uh, brings forth, is that, that minor league teams, for the most part, and we have one down here in the River Valley, that, and it's a single A team. They're single A, double A, and triple A as you move up towards the major leagues. But all of them are designed to be feeders for the main club. So the Toronto Blue Jays have their farm system, single A, double A, triple A which seems to work for the corporate, but it doesn't work for the community. Because what happens is you connect with a player and they start playing good and they become your hero and all of a sudden they move, they, go, they move up. And so all of a sudden your local hero's gone. And so it's like, hmm, I don't wanna fall in love with that person because they're gonna be gone in a month. So it's a very interesting dynamic. So Bing Russell, he's in between acting, he's done with the acting for a while. He goes up to Portland and he buys 500 bucks, he buys the team and he puts out open tryouts. He says like he was casting a play. 300 guys show up that have been, didn't get scholarships and didn't make it. Well, there are 300 people show up and they're all in these different outfits and they've come from all over. One guy came over from South Africa and they, and they interview him and they talk about it. And they said, this is crazy. Nobody builds a baseball team this way. And so it's their story of, and it was Bing's dream to bring baseball back to this community. And what he did was, because they were independent, all the players stayed. And he said, we didn't have any, we didn't have any home run hitters, we didn't have any overwhelming over, uh, uh, pitchers, but what we could do was we could run really fast. And so what they did is they bunted and they stole bases and they ran and ran and ran like crazy. In 1977, they had the top winning percentage in all of baseball, with all these ragamuffin guys. Um, it's just a, such a fun story. Like Kurt Russell says the first game, he said, we didn't know what we were doing. And he says, so the first night of our first game, we thought, we're going to get killed. We could end up getting beat 30 to nothing. And he said, pretty soon it's the ninth inning. And somebody says, have those guys, the other team, gotten a hit off us yet? And they get, their pitcher, who came from who knows where, was pitching a no-hitter, pitched a no-hitter. And Kurt Russell says, we knew this was going to be a blast. This was going to be a blast. And he said, we just had these guys, we brought them together, and they just want to love baseball. They were making 400 bucks a week. They, they said that they had a, their star was a guy named Reggie Thomas, and Reggie lived a block away from the ball stadium. But before every game, Reggie, they would send a limo for Reggie, and they'd bring him over in the limo, and they'd bring him down into the field. And the, and the announcer goes, here comes Reggie, and everybody go crazy. And the, and the guy that's narrating, which is an amazing story, I don't want to ruin all of it for you, the guy that's narrating, it says, People would say, well, he lives a block away. What does he need a limo? And he said, because Reggie needs that. Was, oh, we get it. You know, he was the star. But it is an amazing story of having, this guy having a vision of possibility. And they set attendance records. They went from 
they went from 400 people a game to over 4,000 a game. Their, their final year, they had, they, they had 125,000 people show up for their, their home games. It was incredible to the point where Major League Baseball says, well, this ain't right. We got to come back in here. So, you're doing something. We, we don't, this isn't working for us. And, and it's, it's an amazing story that you just got to see of this one man's vision and what happens. And so we're talking about the one thing. And the infinite says, whatever one thing is important to you, it's, it's important to me because you are the beloved who I'm going to give all the gifts to. You have everything you need to succeed and thrive in your life. Everything, I've already given you all this. It's, it's there. As Ernest Holmes said, the idea already exists in the mind of the one. And until we create the consciousness to capture it and give it form, it just stays up in the ethers. So the, the genius awaits us. So in this one thing, with this book, here's a picture of Jack Palance when he said in the, in the City Slickers, you know, you, you got to figure out the one thing. And of course, Billy Crystal says, what? What are you talking about? What's that? And he goes, that's what you got to figure out because we all get to figure out the one thing. And so I wanted to talk about the six lies that derail us today, and I'm going to touch on them really quickly. It's a great, great book. It's a really easy read, and if you're interested in, in, in looking at it more deeply, we have copies in the bookstore, or you can pick one up you know, when you're called to it. But if not, let me just touch on some of these great ideas today. A quote here by, by Goethe, who says, Things that matter most must never be at the mercy of things which matter least. Things that matter most must never be at the mercy of things that matter least. And so the six lies are that everything matters equally. Everything has the same importance, which it doesn't. You can't be everything to all people. You know, I can't get up every Sunday and, 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 and talk about Jesus and talk about Buddha and talk about Muhammad. I can't give them all equal space and time. You know, we can't, we can't have a service, servant to two masters, as Scripture would say. And multitasking, another lie. A dis disciplined life, another lie. Willpower is always on will call, another lie. A balanced life, big lie. And big is bad, another lie. So I'm going to talk about those. I'm going to flesh those out with you. And, um, and hopefully make as much sense as I can. And, they're, they're, you know, let's make this a blast today. Just like Kurt Russell would say, you know. We just knew today was just going to be a blast what would make this a blast for you? If you need, you know what we should do? In the middle of, let's have a Chinese fire drill. Everybody gets up and we all change seats. <laughs> the first shall be last. You guys in the back row, come up here. That might scare some people. I'm just, let's just use that as a metaphor, not actually an activity. Yeah, you're ready to do it. Yeah, that's, you're the 20% I'm going to talk about in a moment. So, Everything matters equally. Equality is a lie. Equality is a lie. And they talk about this when you're doing uh, training for pastoral care in churches that, you know, everybody should be treated equally. Well, everybody, you can't do that because some people are in the hospital. Some people are dying. Some people have had tragedy. So they require a bit more care. And, and other people at, at that point in time, they may not. So it's a flow. It's, but you, it, it's silly to think, well, you know, golly, I'm not getting mine over here or it should all be equal. Doesn't, life doesn't work that way. The most important, this is from Bob Hawk. The things that are most important don't often, uh, off, don't often scream the loudest. The things that are most important don't often scream the loudest. So they're subtle. What's the most important things we can do? That, 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 that you'll notice there's a subtlety to it. And to, and to swap your to-do list for a success list. Have you ever done the punch list, the things you've got to get done? 
you know, buy bread, have uh, brain surgery, get the mail, um, you know, and you check off bread and get the mail, and the other one is, you know, you, you think the surgery is just as much, the, that thing, that whole success list. Change the to-do list to a success list. Talks about the 80-20 rule. 80-20, that, and this comes from Pareto. 80%, he found this as an Italian uh, researcher. 80% of the land in Italy at the time he did this research was owned by 20% of the population. And so that whole 80-20 rule that you, 80% of the, the work we do here is, is supported by 20% of our membership. It's, it's true in any environment. The percentages might be off a few, but it's typically 20% hold together uh, and, and, and hold the space for the other 80. So it's just, they call it Pareto's principle of unequal distribution. But the point is, is that a small amount of cost creates the most results. So in other words, 20% of our activity creates the greatest benefit for ourselves. So if we look at this, how many hours a week, what we do as a community is one of the, one of the touchstones of what we do is we do a Sunday celebration. We do music, we do a message, we, we have times identified. And from this activity, pretty much 90% of what we do springs forth. So your support here is, is, and, and your participation here is so vital to the health and vibrancy of what we do. And so we put a lot of energy into that. So about the bulk of my energy goes into this activity. And it's a wonderful thing, but you understand that. You realize, you know, if I thought that it was going to add more value for me to be out there cutting the grass every week, and I've done that in the past, and I want to thank all the people that are on that team, I'd be doing that. And I have done that, and we'll probably do it again. But I'm just saying that so you, you understand this 80-20 rule. A small amount of cause creates the most amount of results. So with that, the idea is to go small. Figure out what your one thing is. What's your one thing? What is your one thing? That right now will shift and change everything. And so he talks about going extreme. So take the 80-20, you find out what your 20% 20, 20 is, and then you take that 20% and you break that down to 80-20. And then you take that 20% and you break that down to 80-20 until you have one, just one thing. The one thing that will give you the most momentum and the most impact with what you're doing. He calls it going extreme. When you break it down and break it down and break it down, he got together 100 ideas from the people that he collaborated with in his own, his own office and said, what's the one thing that we can do to take what we're doing now, which was very successful regionally, to the next level, which was internationally? Excuse me. So Keller Williams is his real estate company. And at, at a certain point, when he identified the one thing, everything changed. They grew 40% a year for a, a decade, which is a lot of growth. But they started with that one idea, and the one idea they had was to write this book and share these ideas. Because once they wrote the book, all of a sudden the, the interest uh, percolated up, people wanted to meet him, people wanted to bring him in to speak, all of a sudden it helped his marketing and helped him every, every, in everything that he was doing. Which means that you have to say no. In all of our lives, when we sign out what the one thing is, then we get to say no. Because saying no, then our no becomes, and it's easier to say no when we realize, well, this is what the one thing is. And if this over here doesn't line up with that over there, saying no to this is saying yes to this. And we all have to do that. And when we understand it's not personal, it's just what we're doing. It's where we decided to put our energy. It's just like growing in consciousness. We do it choice by choice by choice. We have a different thought every 14 seconds. And so if we're not aware of that, we can run with those thoughts, go, oh, and get distracted. 
So don't get trapped in the checkoff game as well as he says. Don't get trapped in that. Then he moves into multitasking. And multitasking was a study was done by Clifford Nass at Stanford University. Multitaskers Oh, there's, yeah, I, I pulled that up for you. I tried to log on to my iPad. Turns out it was an Etch-a-Sketch, and I don't own an iPad. Oh, and I'm out of wine. <laughs> so probably if you're going to be drinking wine, you don't want to be iPadding, and especially when you don't own one. But there's an idea there about the confusion that can settle in at times. Multitaskers are lousy at everything. We have enough research now to know you can't do it. They always talk about women are better than men at multitasking. Everybody's lousy at it. And they've study after study in the book talks about that, how they score poorly on tests. They do, they don't, uh, they're not effective. Talks about distractions are natural. We all get distracted. We all have distractions that come along. We all have things that will pull us away. But once again, it's, it's to be able to say, not right now. I'll do that. I'll do that once I finish what's most important to me. And to have that awareness to say, yeah, I can do that, but not right now. This is it. Multitasking takes a toll. It wears us out. They did a study in Britain of, I think it was 1,100 and some civil servants over a period of time. And they measured them. And they found that those, the, on average, they all worked 11 hours a day. And on average, they had 65% more heart failure as a result of the stress of doing the job that long consistently. It just wore them down and wore them down and they were all you know, multitasking and doing a lot of things, but it drains us. Multitasking drains us. And distractions undermine our results. They just do. You know, um, I won't go there with you. I'll tell you next week. <laughs> but, but, but distractions really do undermine us. You really have to, uh, the point I was going to say is, you know, I, in my, my first uh, ministry, I used to do a lot of the music. In fact, I had no music budget, so I sang the songs every week. And I had this piano, piano the music director, and he would, we would get there like two hours early, and I would learn three new songs for that Sunday. I don't think I ever sang all the notes correctly to one song in five and a half years of ministry in my first church. But we'd get together and we'd do it, and most of the people were so elderly they couldn't hear it anyway. All they do is they'd see my mouth moving and know that there was a song happening. So it worked out well. It was, it was the appropriate level of, of artistry for the appropriate level of listening, is what I would say. But, but it didn't work well, and it was a complete distraction. It was so nice to come here and go, oh, you guys have a music program? I don't have to learn three songs every, every Sunday morning. What a lovely thing, because it is distracting. And, and, and I'm up there singing, and all I can do is hope and, that it gets over as soon as possible, you know, and I'm the guy doing it. So multitasking doesn't work. The next lie is this disciplined life. I need more discipline in my life. Boy, I've said that many times. Success is a, is a, a short race, a, um, a sprint fueled by discipline just long enough for the habit to kick in and take over. So this is really interesting. I love this piece. We have to, to um, give our energy to something long enough until it becomes a habit. So it, it doesn't require all of us. It just requires enough to create the habit. Now, how long do you, we did this at the first one. We'll do it here. How long does it take to create a habit? Just enough. Perfect answer. Thank you, Carol. Somebody said what, how many weeks? Three weeks? 21 days? Yeah, that's the one I've heard. I've heard 21 days. 
Anybody else? Do I hear, do I hear 50 days? Do I hear? It, on, a habit requires, on average, 66 days. That's how long it takes. On average, it can take from 18, according to what's in the book, up to 254 days. So, isn't that great to know? And so, as he says, success is not doing everything perfect. It is simply doing the right thing. It's not, you know, to say, oh, I didn't do that perfect. I, I, then I, therefore, I can't do them with that evidence. Therefore, I can't do this. That's just self-sabotage. But to realize, you know what? I can do this one thing that's precious to me right. You know, in Yogananda's work, the Self-Realization Fellowship, he says, with his practice, where Laura and I have been using his practices, and he says, if you do this consistently for 24 years, on average, 24 years, enlightenment. That's why these people devote themselves to it. They, you know, they, they go and they live there, and it's just a beautiful thing. I mean, God bless these people holding that space for us in consciousness. This room of possibility thinkers of the elevated consciousness here to see beyond conditions, to realize there's something more alive and dynamic than just simply the world of effect. We are holding this space for millions of people energetically. It's a beautiful thing. Just by being, just by entertaining the ideas, joining in an affirmative prayer, there's one life, that life is spirit's life, that life is my life now. And allowing ourselves to be lifted up, we lift others. It's, it's fascinating. We, there's no private good, as Dr. Ernest Holmes said. In fact, Dr. Tr- Thomas Troward said this, who influenced Dr. Holmes uh, tremendously, and Dr. Troward was an English judge that lived in East India and studied with the great masters of the time. And he said, there's two things. You must realize that you are at the center of it. Each and every one of us is at the center. And that each and every one of us can do nothing to enhance its efficiency. Which simply means that we got to get out of the way. That there's a power that is seeking expression through us. It doesn't mean by getting out of the way that we don't live, that, we don't, that we're not inspired, that we're not like Bing Russell who just loved baseball and said, I'm going to take my money, I'm going to go up to Portland and I'm going to invite, invite 300 people to come audition for the play I'm putting together. He had, as a matter of fact, they had, if they would win one game in a row, he'd have one of his players get out with a broom on top of the dugout and go like this, representing in the second game. They're going to sweep, which a sweep is usually more than two games. But two games was enough for those guys, and they'd sweep. And then he had his bat boy soak the, the, the broom in lighter fluid and dry it out. And then if they won the game, he'd be out in center field, with, and they'd light the broom on fire, and they'd be rolling it around. This guy says, it was like a lethal weapon. It was a tiki torch. But it was a blast. And then you look up in the stands and everybody's holding a broom. I mean, we need brooms, don't we? <laughs> but I'm, I'm just saying, you know, that one idea, that one thing. And so the habit, success is doing the right thing. Building one habit at a time. So if we know it takes 66 days on average, if we are, our average were 66 days, we could, we could establish five life-changing habits in one year. More or less, okay? Let's give us, we got an extra 30 days to work with if you do the math. But what if you had two or three that were just transformative? What if you got up every day for 66 days and meditated and you had a calendar? They said, you know, I'm going to meditate again. I'm going to give it 66 days because I'm probably going to live 66 days anyway. I'm going to meditate again today. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a meditation that lifts me up, reveal thyself, or whatever it may be, or an affirmative prayer. Let's see what happens in 66 days. What opens up for us? Because they realize, interestingly, as we, we incorporate one habit in our lives, everything else we do in our lives changes by one consistent habit. 
So you're looking at, you know, we'd like the quick fix. I always tell people when they come here, I don't have the quick fix for you. <sighs> I'm broke. Usually people come up, you know, John Maxwell, one of my great inspirations and teachers, years ago, he had a mega church in, in San Diego, did four or five services a Sunday, got up one Sunday, and said, I want to let everybody know I will no longer be doing pastoral counseling. And every group got up and gave him a standing ovation because they knew how bad he was at it. Because people would come to him with a problem, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't do any spiritual practice. Well, what do you think that's about? He'd just tell them how to fix it. Well, I, I, I got a crummy job. Well, go find a new one. What's your next question? And part of it is, part of the learning is sitting in the question and letting people, people discover things for themselves. But in our culture, we don't like that. So I'm thinking about doing that myself, announcing I'll be, no longer be doing that. And you guys can all get up and cheer. So, building the habit and, and giving each habit enough time and enough discipline. Just enough. Because then he goes on to willpower. Willpower is always on will call. We think, our, anybody here, has your willpower ever let you down? Anybody ever go on a diet? And then two days after you've gone on it, all of a sudden you're back to eating the things that inspired you to go on a diet in the first place. You know? I remember in university, we'd, we would go and have a party, and many times we would consume too much alcohol. Not myself, of course, but people that I knew. <laughs> and then you'd, at the, you know, you'd, be, you'd be sort of suffering the ramifications the next day of feeling lousy and miserable and depleted and dehydrated and all the other things, and saying to yourself, I will never touch another drop of alcohol as long as I live. Or until next Friday night rolls along, of course. So the willpower, the willpower can go until you finally establish that as a habit or not. So will, our willpower can get run down. And, and, and we spread it too thin. And he says that in order to have willpower, we just need just enough in the moment. So full strength requires a full tank. So high achievers, as he points out in the book, uh, eat multi... Uh, um, high, high carb content for energy and protein. Things that'll stay with you. So not a lot of sugar. Not a lot of junk food because it comes, it spikes and it goes. So people that are consistent, people that, that, that have follow through, fill their tank with nutrition. So, and, and, and I find that even preparing for this, that, that, that I've got to have something in the morning so my brain can, there's a different experience for me. If I show up and I'm, in, I'm fasting, it's a whole different experience. But do what matters most first each day. What matters most to you each day, do it first. Because that's when we have the most energy. I find that it's like um, 10.30 in the morning. If I don't have it done by then, mm, might not be good. Who knows? I'm finding that window getting smaller and smaller. A balanced life. It's a myth. This balanced life stuff. Remember, you ever been to the workshop and they give you the wheel and they talk about all the different areas in your life that should all be balanced and equal? He says, phooey. A successful life is about purpose, meaning, and significance. Magic happens at the extremes. If we're always focusing on we've got to be balanced right here in the middle, nothing, nothing happens. It's like a teeter-totter. You've been on a teeter-totter, sit in the middle, you don't go up or down. That's no fun. So at the extremes is where some really juicy stuff can happen. He says replace balance with counterbalance. So in other words, like a ballerina. It talks about a ballerina holding point. And I won't even try and do that right now because I can't. But a ballerina in holding, in, in holding point will have arms and legs in a position that helps maintain the balance. And if you look closely at their feet, at ballerinas, their foot's shaking while they're holding point. That's hard to do. 
Extraordinary results require all it demands. So if we're, we're really committed to something, our lives are not going to be in balance. If we're involved in something, and many times when something tragic happens, our lives do go there. You know, all of a sudden, all of our energy and time and concern goes to a certain area. But, but over a period of time, things do balance out. But there's nothing wrong with going to the extreme, because when you're at the extreme, that's where the juicy stuff can happen. Big is bad. It's the next lie. So to go big, they call it, there's a condition called megaphobia, which is that, oh, don't, don't go beyond your comfort zone. Don't get too big. Don't have a big idea. There's wonderful stories in this book about people that went big. Alexander Guinness. Anybody ever heard of him? Developed a little beverage that many are familiar with. Alexander Guinness signed a 9,000-year lease when he leased his building to build his brewery. 9,000-year lease. So he was a bit of an optimist. <laughs> How long would you like to rent it? I think 9,000 years will be enough. <laughs> J.K. Rawlings, who wrote the Harry Potter stuff, she thought big and envisioned seven years at Hogwarts before she penned the first chapter of the first seven books. Sam Walton at, at Walmart. There you guys are. He envisioned a business so big he felt he needed to go ahead and set up his future estate plan to minimize inheritance tax. And I know it's a controversial entity. But Sam was thinking big at the time. And what he did by doing that, he estimated he saved 11 to 13 billion in estate taxes when he made his transition. Thinking big, Candace Leitner started Mothers Against Drunk Driving in 1980 when her daughter was killed by a hit-and-run drunk driver. Today, Matt has saved more than 300,000 lives. And it goes on and on with these beautiful little stories. But it's, it's, it doesn't hurt to think big. We just, but to, to get there, you've got to think small. What's the one thing? What's the, the one thing that you can focus on in your life? And that's for you to discover, as Jack Pellance would say. So thinking big, the meta, mega, big is about who you and I can become. Big is essential to the extraordinary. We have to, to play in it. And then we have to, t- to pare it down to the one thing that, that is the next step. Think big. Those big ideas, as I just re- read with you, don't order from the menu. So it's beyond the menu. When they recruited the guys to make the team for the iPhone, the first guys that showed up with the most enthusiasm, they hired just because they needed that energy to pull it off. They also had that, that capacity. They had the engineering background. It says to act bold to take a chance, to push that envelope, and don't fear failure. Because if you're not failing, you're not, if, you're, if you're not failing, you're not trying. But we think that if we fail, it's all over. And failure is just part of the journey. So the six lies that derail us, everything matters equally, multitasking, a disciplined life, willpower is always on will call. Not true. A balanced life, eh, don't let that distract you. And big is bad, another lie. As Mark Twain said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> oh, I wrote a wonderful thing down here for Michael Beckwith. I think it was that I want to share with you. It's on my pink page. Michael has a way of saying this. He said, get out of the way of the way and let the way have its way in us. I love that. Get out of the way of the way and let the way have its way in us. When that voice, I used this in the first talk, that voice is like in school. Remember the kid in school that was always distracting you? 
And so that's like when we go into meditation and they, oh, just put that kid from the front row, put him in the back row. Because he'll still be back there going, psst, hey, psst, 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 hey, look at this. I know this very well because I used to be that kid. <laughs> put him in the back row. He's still going to be there. You just don't give him any attention. No, no, we're meditating right now. So I can get out of the way, of the way, and let the way have its way in us. And Richard Rohr, final slide today. The one thing, what is it that you used to be certain about that you no longer hold as certain? When he would do a workshop with people, a group of people, he'd ask them that. What, what's the one thing that you used to hold as certain that you no longer hold as certain? Do you have something? And he would ask people for a show of hands. And most of the time, nobody would put their hand up. And he said it was a realization that people hadn't grown much. Because part of this whole thing is putting down and unraveling the things that we hold as certain so that we can get out of the way so the, the, the way can have its way by us. So it's a fascinating thing to think about. What is it that's, with the, that's limiting your experience or something that you long to experience? What is the one thing for you? And you may not know that right now, but it's a great question to work with. And what is the one habit that you want to bring enough willpower to that becomes part of your day-to-day -day experience? It takes about 66 days, or it might take up to 254 days, but you're probably going to live 254 days anyway. So great stuff to think about. And how does it relate to our spiritual deepening? How does it relate to us being transformed and then taking that experience and that consciousness out into the world? To not only, because it, it blesses us and it blesses others. And part of it is the, the paradox is getting out of the way, so, for the way, so that it can have its way in us. Blessings, we'll see you next week. Thank you.